I've been receiving more and more DMs and emails from folks wanting to share their stories on Penned, and I can't express how excited each one makes me. I'm serious. This show is always a work in progress, and as I do each episode, I'm shocked by how it's reaching more and more of you. Please keep them coming. I opened up my Instagram last month and read a DM from a gentleman by the name of Martin Lockett. He's a formerly incarcerated man who was released from an almost 20-year sentence last year. He shared a shortened version of his story with me, and I was instantly hooked. We scheduled a call a few days later, and I was even more impressed with the man I spoke with. You know those rare occasions when you speak to someone and they just blow you away immediately? Well, this was one of those times. Martin's story isn't rooted in happiness or even a wrongful conviction. He'll be the first to tell you that. It's one that begins with a tragedy and ends with a new beginning and a purpose. His story takes place almost 20 years ago in the city I call home. Portland, Oregon. I'm Christina Hansen, and this is Penn. So my name is Martin Lockett, and I am 43 years old. I have spent nearly half my life incarcerated. I've been out a year now as of Tuesday, so just a few days ago. And while incarcerated, I pursued a master's degree in psychology and later got certified as a substance abuse counselor. But there's a very specific reason why I embarked on this particular career pursuit. And so I'll back up and explain what led to my very lengthy incarceration and how I got on this mission. So I became an alcoholic around age 16. I drank every day, even though I was responsible as far as holding down a job and taking care of my bills and being responsible in that regard. I was going to school in the evenings to become a nurse. So on the surface, everything looked okay. But outside of that, things were very much not okay. And so I drank to self-medicate. I was, you know, very insecure and, you know, had to put up a facade to the world that I was somebody that I wasn't. And so it was much easier for me to drown my self-pity, for lack of a better word, in a bottle of brandy. So that's what I did. Alcohol became my best friend until it wasn't. So leading into the day of New Year's Eve 2003, I had traveled from my home in Vancouver, Washington to a warehouse in Portland where I worked at the time. Everything was normal. I remember we were wrapping up for the day. We were getting off early because it was New Year's Eve. So it's about 11 o'clock. And we're about ready to punch out. And I can still hear my boss joke with us and say, you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but don't let me wake up and see you on the front page. And of course, I laughed it off and I clocked out for the day. But as you can see, almost 20 years later, I've never forgotten those very prophetic words. And so I left work at about 1130. I headed straight to the liquor store where I bought a fifth of gin. I then proceeded to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. So I get to my parents' house and we hang out. I drink the alcohol. And then he and I had made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party. And after I drank that fifth of gin, I then went back to the store where I bought four 24-ounce cans of beer. Now, if you're doing the quick math on that, that is 96 ounces of beer that I consumed between the hours of five and eight o'clock that night. And then my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we certainly didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and hang out, watch TV. We drink a pint of Hennessy together between the three of us and kill some time. It's now about 11 o'clock. So we figure it's a good time to head out and go to the party. So as we're walking out his apartment door, I remember his mother say, now y'all be careful tonight. You hear? Of course, the three of us reply, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know, obviously we had no intentions of being careful that night. So we get to the party. We have fun. We see a bunch of old high school classmates, drink more alcohol, of course, bring in the new year. Everything is great. It's about 1215. We exit the party. The three of us get into my vehicle. Now, most people would think, well, how come, you know, at this point, your brother, your friend didn't try to take the keys from you. You know, you've been drinking all day. It's a very fair point. However, very sad to say that nobody thought anything of it because all three of us, in fact, my whole friend group at that time would drink and drive regularly. I mean, it was just it was just 
par for the course. Nobody ever thought twice about it. So we pile into my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident. I then get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how extremely exhausted I am because I've been drinking all day. I think I'd had one meal at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock that late afternoon, early evening. And I'm just totally exhausted. And I want to get him home because I still had another half hour or so to drive to my house in Vancouver, Washington. So on the freeway, I begin to pick up my speed to about 80 miles an hour. And this makes my brother a little nervous. And he says, hey, man, you know, you might want to slow down. You know, the police are out, especially being a holiday and all. And I thought, OK, well, you know, that makes sense. So I'm going to hit and slow down, but more or less just to kind of keep him quiet. So we continue to drive on the freeway and I take the exit for those in Portland. The Lloyd Center exit is what I took. And then I'm, I get on to Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. So I'm now driving in a residential area. And again, I begin to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour. Now, this time, my brother grows more impatient with me and he begins to yell, slow down before we crash. And I snap back at him, man, calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this. Nonetheless, just to appease him, I went ahead and slowed down. So we continue to drive for about 10 minutes and I'm nearing the block where I'm going to drop him off at a parent's house. And I'm just about to get into the left turning lane. And then he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. So he says, hey, bro, let's go up to the mini mart up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. And I'm thinking, great. You know, here's one more stop that I just don't want to have to make. So we continue to drive for a couple blocks and then about two or three blocks from that point, there's the next intersection. And I'm looking up at the light and the light is clearly yellow. I mean, as intoxicated as I was, I still knew that there was no way I was going to make this light. But it did not matter because in a split second, I had made up my mind. I'm not going to wait for it. I'm going to go right through. So I immediately punched the gas and I'm almost tunnel vision looking straight forward, not seeing anything to the left or right of me. And I accelerate quickly because I'm in a newer model vehicle. And it's just, I mean, literally seconds later, boom. And, you know, the impact literally it shook the earth is what it felt like. It's just so, so profound. And so the airbag enveloped my face. And I remember it felt like a parachute that was on my face and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I immediately kind of shake it off and I look at my brother and he appears to be okay. So I'm, you know, somewhat relieved. And at the same time, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle and instead of checking on the people I had just hit, as most decent people would, I was starting to assess the damage on my vehicle because at the time, it was everything to me. I was extremely superficial. I was very self-absorbed. Everything was about me. And I just couldn't believe that my prized possession, my status symbol of success was utterly destroyed. So I'm walking around my vehicle and I'm looking at my rams that are completely mangled and the entire front end is smashed inward. And, you know, I'm devastated because I'm now looking at my prized possession in a heap of crumpled metal. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street where the other car had landed. It spun about 60 feet is what I later found out. And he says, hey, bro, he said, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement over there, man. And I don't think they're moving. So instantly my attention goes to that. And I'm starting to process as much as I can in that moment anyway, the magnitude of what I had just done. But before I had time to really think about anything, as you can imagine, lights and sirens are everywhere. And so the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about five minutes into that ride, or I'm sorry, that interview, rather, the officer had confirmed to me what I had, you know, in my heart of hearts had known to be true already, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had in fact died. And he informed me that another one was being driven by ambulance to Emmanuel Hospital just blocks away. So I am placed under arrest, put into the back of the cruiser, and we head downtown for processing. And as I'm in the back seat, thinking about my young 24-year-old life and the fact that I just killed someone, I mean, the devastation is just, I mean, that, that, that's an understatement. 
to say that I was just feeling devastated and overwhelmed. And so I'm listening to the radio, the police radio, because there's a lot of chatter about the crash, as you can imagine. And it sounded like about five or 10 minutes into that ride, it sounded like they had pronounced someone else dead at the scene. And so I said, excuse me, sir. He said, yes. I said, did I just hear that correctly? Did they just say that someone else was in the vehicle and they died? He said, unfortunately, yes. So now there's two people who are no longer living. And there's another person who I knew was in critical condition. He ended up surviving, but he had permanent injuries because of the crash. And this was all because I chose to have one night or one day of reckless, senseless fun. And so at 24 years old, I knew that I was going to spend about the next 20 years in prison based on the law. And two amazing people were dead because of me. Wow. That is a heavy story. And to know that even 20, you know, 20, almost 20 years later, you can still recall all of these details. I know that you tell your story quite frequently, but to have to relive that and tell those stories or tell the story and share these details, I can't, I mean, I just, you can't imagine having to, you know, remember those feelings all over again. But what I really respect is the perspective that you're giving myself and the listeners that are listening in of one night, right? We all go out on New Year's, you know, or most of us, I'm sure. And I've certainly have done my fair share of drinking and driving when I shouldn't. We've, you know, make stupid mistakes, especially when we're younger and we feel like we can, you know, we're invincible. You know, your story is one of those where I feel like I've heard this, but I, you know, like we we all can kind of hear these stories that whether we read it online or we, you know, we see it on a TV show, but that was your reality. Right. And it's interesting you say that because the next morning I exit my cell and I go to the day room to make a phone call, you know, talk to my family and the news is on. And of course, you know, the top story is the fatal crash. And let me just say that I'm very deliberate in how I refer to this. A lot of people say an accident and I'm reluctant to call it an accident. Obviously, it wasn't intentional, but it was very preventable because as intoxicated as I was, I knew that I had no business driving. Right. I made every excuse in the book to make it okay for me to drive. But I know, obviously, in my rational, reasonable brain that it was never okay to drive. So I call it a fatal crash or a fatal collision, but I do not call it an accident. So so there's that. So the next morning I'm watching the news and, you know, but I really didn't want to watch it. Obviously, I had known what had happened. And so I didn't want to watch it. And I kind of leaned forward in the chair and I just bury my head in my hands and I'm listening to it, you know, but I'm not really listening to it because I think in that moment I did exactly what you just talked about. And I was kind of recollecting all the newspaper articles that I read over the years, right? And all the news coverage where I seen fatal crashes that happened to everybody else before me, right? And yet, you know, in my just moments of self-deceit and irrationality and making excuses and, you know, justifying my actions, I had actually convinced myself that would never happen to me. Right. This doesn't happen to me because I'm you know, smarter than that or I'm better than that or I'm in more control than these lightweight drinkers who couldn't contain their alcohol. Right. Whatever minimization or rationalization I would use to make it OK, I used. And now I'm in this predicament. And so I'm just saying that, like, you never think it's going to happen to you until it does. And so three days later. I'm in my cell and I'm just minding my own business. And I noticed someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper. That's a statewide newspaper in Oregon. They had slid it underneath my door. And I didn't understand why, because I didn't ask to see a paper from anybody. And so I pick it up. I begin to thumb through it. And I see my picture on the front page of the Metro section. And with each paragraph that I read that morning, for the first time in about four days, my faceless victims became people. And these people had an amazing story. And their story was they were recovering addicts, believe it or not, who had actually managed to turn their lives around 
And we're now helping others get clean and sober. I remember they were saying in the article that they would watch women's kids so that they could attend AA and NA meetings. They volunteer with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They volunteered at Volunteers of America. They were widely beloved in the community as recovery advocates. In fact, that very night that this tragedy happened, they were coming home from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the columnists have talked about the sheer irony of that, that they would be killed by the very person they would have done anything to help. And I'll never forget what he concluded the article with. It changed the next almost 20 years of my life. Even to this day, I live out what those words meant to me. And he said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. And even though I'm still processing the fact that, you know, I'm going to spend probably the next 20 years in prison. So I couldn't fully appreciate the value in what he had just said in those words, but I knew they were profound. And so I became determined to figure out what those words were supposed to mean for my life. And so for the next, I don't know, six or seven months, I just couldn't stop hearing that phrase. I would eat food and I would hear the phrase. I would lay my head down to go to sleep and I would hear it. I mean, just over and over and over. And then it finally came to me after much prayer and meditation on it, that the only way this tragedy will not you know, remain a simple tragedy and will not be in vain is if I carry on their legacies, if I devote the rest of my life to doing everything that I possibly can to ensure that not just something like this never happening again, but that if I can help those who struggle in active addiction so that they don't obviously do something like this, but that they don't ruin their lives in other ways, that they don't put families through unnecessary grief and heartache, you know, then that's what I wanted to do. And so in that moment, I vowed to do that. I didn't know what that was going to look like for the next however many years in prison I would get. I didn't know how much time I would do at that point, but I knew that I was committed to this mission. And so that's kind of when everything started to change for me. I can imagine the weight of that statement, not just reading it, but then having to kind of hear that in your head and in your everyday life. Like you were saying, you know, you would eat and you would hear that the conclusion of the article and you would go to sleep and you would hear that conclusion to the article. And that I would imagine was, is earth shattering. You know what happened, you know what occurred, all those things. But I feel, I could feel the weight of that as you were explaining that. I could feel the weight of the conclusion of that article. And so how did your journey start while you were in prison? I mean, knowing that you had about 20 years to serve, where do you even go from there to begin this process? Right. So several months later, I ended up taking a plea bargain for 17 and a half years, day for day in Oregon. It's it's a mandatory minimum sentence. It's considered a person-to-person violent crime. So I knew that I would not get a single day off, no matter how good I was or if I worked a job or, you know, furthered my education. I knew that I could not earn a single day off. So the motivation had nothing to do with that. It was the fact that I had taken two amazing people from this earth. And now I owed it to them and their families to honor their memories. And so when I got to the prison, the state prison on January 25th of 2005, I knew I needed an education. I had to start with an education. I had a GD at the time. I needed more. So I embarked on that, got my education to start. Well, I was a tutor first for the GED program. And then I delved into some college courses. I was taking one college course at a time, 25 bucks. And so I did that for about three years. And then unfortunately, I lost my dad. But because of that, I was able to get some money from, you know, insurance policies and pension and things like that. And I was able to branch out and do distance education courses from Louisiana State University and Indiana University. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit and also explain a a critical piece of the story. And the things I was able to do happened because I had 
gotten on a pen pal website and I gotten a response from a woman in Pennsylvania and we struck up a correspondence, nothing romantic, just a correspondence where we look forward to hearing from each other. About six months later, it went to phone calls and then we eventually did pursue a relationship. And so she would come out every six months, stay and visit for five days straight. We would talk on the phone three or four times a day. She was adamant that I do everything I can and she would help me to pursue this goal and this dream and this mission. So she did all the footwork, if you will, to get me set up with these outside correspondence courses and work with the advisors and order my exams that had to be proctored and send the books from Amazon, you name it. And she she, she was more than happy to do it because she believed in me. And it was actually, you know, it was critical because at that point, I really fully didn't believe in myself. I had never had any, you know, real success in life. And so there was things that I wanted to do, but I was unsure as to whether or not I could actually carry them out. So she was the catalyst to that. And so we embarked on that. And I ended up getting my associate's degree from Indiana University in 2010. I then got my bachelor's in sociology in 2013. Around that same time, I started to write my memoir. Again, she inspired me to do that, encouraged me to do that. So I did that and she helped me to get that published. And then I got my master's degree in psychology in 2016. Around this same time, I'm starting to mentor other inmates, you know, just about life. Because in prison, as you can imagine, there's not a lot of safe spaces where guys can, you know, go to other guys and be vulnerable and talk about what's really going on, right? Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of guys feel like they have to walk around with their chest, you know, poked out and, you know, kind of playing that, you know, that tough guy role. But inwardly, we know there's a lot more going on. And so guys saw that I was very consistent in the way that I conducted myself. They knew I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And so they would seek me out, young guys especially, And we would talk about life and we would talk about education and goals and plans and things like that. And so I knew then that counseling was definitely, you know, for me, that that was the way I wanted to go. And so I was able to eventually in 2018 get into a substance abuse treatment program as a participant. And then when I graduated from that, I interned and accrue clinical hours toward state certification as a substance abuse counselor that I acquired in 2019. Wow. So first of all, I just want to say, what an incredible woman. (laughs) Yes. Yes, she Um, is. Wow. I think it takes a really big person with a lot of foresight to not just believe in somebody, but provide, you know, outside help and guidance and well just mix that in with a lot of love clearly she loves you very very much to to help you on this journey but what an incredible I think if we all had somebody who believed in us like that gosh the world would be such a better place (laughs) well and I'll second that by saying there's a very renowned psychologist who he you know he works with by and large people who have killed people and guys who have been incarcerated for 30 years And he said that the number one factor to somebody actually rehabilitating while in prison is that they have one person on the outside who's just crazy about them. I mean, he said he put it as simply as that. He said, because that then gives them a reason to start to, you know, want to be better and to want to do more. But by and large, a lot of guys in prison have not had the greatest relationships. They've not had the greatest support. And so they feel like everybody has given up on them. So why should they care about themselves? And so again, he was definitely kind of that spark to my flame to to get me to start to believe in myself and to see myself as doing more because I had always put a ceiling on my life as to what I could do. And she totally came in and shattered that ceiling and thank God for it. That's such a good point. I wasn't trying to be hyperbolic earlier, but really, if somebody had one person that just loved and believed in them so much, the world would be a better place. And, you know, I think about, like, if we're talking just on the topic of addiction, substance abuse and whatnot, a lot of the times people turn to those things because they are running from something, whether it's a family problem or, you know, what have you, it is, it becomes that crutch in their escape. 
And, you know, that then leads them down this other path where, you know, if we talk about addiction as an illness too, like that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure you can kind of attest to that as well. Exactly. Because, you know, ultimately we all have core needs. And one of those core needs is to love and to be loved, right? To know what it feels like to love someone or be attached to someone in a healthy manner and then to have that reciprocated. And the absence of that is going to lead to you, you know, looking to to numb that pain, right? To avoid it because it's so painful to accept the fact or to believe that no one cares about you, right? That you're not lovable, And all these kind of negative self-talk things that we engage in that makes us feel less than and unworthy and unimportant. And that just goes against kind of the basic fabric of who we are as human beings. And so we will look to we will look to mitigate that. We'll look to suppress that. And unfortunately, drugs and alcohol are, you know, kind of readily available and easily attainable to take care of that. And so you're right. That is the impetus for a lot of people, you know, succumbing to those desires. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you and I started talking about this the other day, and I really want to touch back on it again. But the idea of our penal system being so punitive And when we talk about things like rehabilitation, you know, that's our justice system and rehabilitation do not go hand in hand. We can, we've talked about this a lot. This is, you know, almost a fact at this point. But what really gets me is this idea of like a revenge mentality, you know, this eye for an eye, you know, you took a life, now we're going to take your life kind of a thing. And I just, you know, I know that granted, like, things happen and people do wrong things. But when we have this revenge mentality in our American society, like really who does that serve? Right, exactly. And we think that we're doing justice to the victims and their families. And really, it ultimately, as we've seen just statistically, it ends up, you know, causing more victims because that person who gets incarcerated for, and here's the thing, It's not to say that there should be no punishment for crime. Obviously, nobody's advocating that. But to simply lock somebody up for, you know, 5, 10, 10, 15, 20, 25 years at a time, and then to expect them to, I don't know, just magically change because they've been away from their friends and family and everybody that, you know, cared and, you know, somewhat about them for X amount of years, you think that's going to just magically change them and rehabilitate them? No, there is so much. Listen, there was no reason because of the mandatory minimum sentencing in Oregon and in other places, there is no reason for somebody to want to correct their behavior. I could have gotten into a fight every other day and I would have gotten out at the same time. Right. So it just goes against basic psychology that if you provide somebody with an incentive, a reward of some level for engaging in the desirable behavior that you want to see them engage in, then there is that is how you bring about change. That's how you bring about rehabilitation. That's how you correct bad behavior. Simply locking them up, throwing away the key and saying, see you in 10 years does not help. In fact, only makes it worse because a lot of guys will fall prey to the prison culture, the prison mentality, which is violent and aggressive and manipulative and all these terrible things. And guess what? They're going to get out of prison at some point. And guess what? They're going back to their old neighborhood. And guess what? They're likely, or there's a greater likelihood that they're going to reoffend, which means they're going to victimize more people. So how does that serve society? How does simply locking people up repay the debt, as they like to say, to society? No, if anything, is causing further harm, more victimization, and that debt gets greater and greater. It's just an asinine model that doesn't work, and yet we perpetuate it. I agree with you 100%. And the other thing, too, that blows my mind is somebody serves their time, and then they get out, and they realize that their life is 10 times harder than it was prior to having a record, right? So... I mean, I'm sure you can attest to this even better than I can, but somebody going to get a job, somebody going to get an apartment, place to rent, a home, all these things, they can't even, felons can't vote. I mean, we've completely stripped people away of their hope 
after they get out of prison, after they've served their time and are supposedly, quote unquote, should have a clean slate, and yet we provide no clean slate. There are so many barriers to guys attaining success when they get out of prison, even if they have an actual desire to go straight because of all those things you mentioned. And so one would think that, okay, if you're going to lock somebody up for 10, 15, 20 years, you would at least, while they're incarcerated, want to equip them with what they need to be successful when they get out. How about we start with, you know, programs that teach them the fundamentals of the internet and technology and how to, because I'll tell you, 17 and a half years, a whole lot had changed when I set foot on, you know, free soil again. And thankfully, I had somebody by my side, my fiance, to kind of walk me through all the, you know, technologies that I now have to live by. And, but, you know, I'm fortunate. A lot of people don't have such a support system. And so they're trying to navigate this whole new world after 20 years and they just feel overwhelmed. And we know that when people feel overwhelmed, that they can't cope, guess what? Their brain is going to say, oh, well, we know how to deal with this. And it's going to go right back to whatever it is that they know. And so, I mean, minimum we should be doing as a society, we should be doing everything we can while people are in the custody of correction, you know, departments of corrections around this country, doing what we can to prepare them for a highly advanced technological world. I mean, at minimum, we should be doing that. You know, they had taken away the Pell Grants back in the 90s, this so-called tough on crime, you know, campaign that has only left people getting out of prison, you know, more, you know, uneducated by and large and ill-equipped to succeed. And I just I just don't get how this benefits society. I don't get how this benefits us as a people, as a country. It just makes no sense. Right. Well, it doesn't benefit. It benefits nobody. I mean, it benefits just perpetuating the system that we've created and live by. And it seems to just be getting worse, you know, especially when we talk about crimes that are fueled by addiction, too. This is something that's near and dear to my heart because I, you know, have an addict in my family and I've seen the damage firsthand of what that can do. And that is a terrible, terrible thing to watch somebody just throw their life away because they're addicted to a substance. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance there, but, you know, where we're going to lock, you know, so I'm just talking, I'm talking about my brother who is this reoccurring character on, on, on Penned, but, you know, he's been in and out of prison for over a decade and, you know, a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons, but one of them is, you know, substance abuse and drugs and alcohol. And, you know, he's clearly has an illness, but locking him up and, you know, Putting him in the system time and time again has done nothing but make it worse because he gets out and then he has no hope because he cannot get a job. I mean, you know, the jobs that he's gotten aren't have not been the greatest, right? So we're delegating these people to doing jobs that they feel like they have no future in, right? That's another thing. We're humans. We have dreams and aspirations. And then, you know, of course, like when times get tough, what's he going to turn back to? He's going to turn back to heroin. He's going to turn back to meth. He's going to turn back to alcohol because those are the things that he has only known to cope with his hardships. Right. And that's another really good point. So aside from, you know, the educational and technological things that that ought to be provided for those incarcerated to prepare them for release, there is also a glaring lack of mental health and substance abuse resources, at least in the state. So so nationwide. Right. They've done countless studies and it's, you know, 79 to 80 percent of those who are incarcerated across the United States of America have some involvement or some correlation with drugs and or alcohol at the time of their arrest, whether it was they were currently intoxicated, they were committing a crime to get it, they admitted that they had an issue with substances, 80% fall within that category. And yet, at least in the state of Oregon, it was only drug and alcohol treatment was only accessible to about 5% of the population. So, so, so 5% of us 
who are fortunate enough, and I happen to be within that, thank goodness, I was able to actually go through a seven seven month program to learn all about addiction and you know emotional states and how to cope and relapse prevention you know plans and trigger warnings and all these healthy you know things that you know that have enabled me to cope and just you know seeing my addiction different but you know what about the other ninety five percent of that eighty percent that didn't you know get that opportunity and so. Again, how can you expect for someone like your brother or, you know, the countless others who suffer from this disease, how can you expect them to just magically, because they haven't had it for three years or five years or seven years, you expect them to get out and just, well, you haven't had it for that long. You shouldn't go back to it. Well, you don't know how addiction works. You don't understand how it manifests in the most primitive part of your brain, this kind of on autopilot, right? It's not a part of your rational brain your you know reasonable brain where you think about you know future consequences and logic and reason and all that good stuff it's in the most basic you know they call it the reptilian brain or the midbrain or you know just it's kind of on autopilot and so again the time itself people thinks that you know people think that the time itself is going to kind of heal all wounds so to speak and it just doesn't work that way that's just not the way we're biologically wired and so tragically, you see the result of that firsthand in your brother who just can't seem to kind of dig himself out of this rut. He's certainly not being helped by the system that continues to take custody of him. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, it's such a hard cycle to witness in my own life and experience with my brother and my own family. But just in society in general, I mean, you know, we're, you're from Portland, just like I am. And, you know, seeing, I know we had talked about this the, the other day, but the city has changed a lot and it's, it's heartbreaking because you can see the flaws in our system, not helping people who have, you know, very deep mental health issues, not helping people who have very deep addiction issues. You know, I go outside my door and run an errand or whatever, and you run into, you see people on the streets just, I mean, it is just awful. And yet here we are and, you know, there's no help. There's no aid. What is, you know, I just, I tell my husband all the time, I'm like, what is going on here? It's so, this is such a prevalent thing that I can see in my daily life. Like how are state and government officials not seeing this and wanting to do something about it? Instead, you know, we have police raiding houseless camps and then what? They're locking them up and then the cycle begins all over again. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. Right. Well, it's mind-blowing for people who get it. But unfortunately, this, you know, as a counselor and a staunch, you know, mental health advocate, you know, it's a battle that we continue to fight to change the mindset of most people in society. Because again, most people believe that it is a simple choice. That addiction is simply a choice. No, you choose to drink. You choose to do drugs. You choose. And they're not understanding the, you know, the biological nature and manifestation of addiction. Now, granted, I'm not saying that you're just a robot and you can't think for yourself. But, you know, the mechanisms in the brain that, that, that are hijacked when you are addicted to a substance is, you know, something that, you know, is something that you wouldn't understand unless you are that person. So we deal with parts of the brain that are kind of taken over that other people who are not addicted to substances will never have to deal with. They have no idea what it feels like. They have no idea what intense cravings feel like. They have no idea what withdrawal symptoms from alcohol or drugs feel like. They have no idea what it feels like to think that unless you engage in this substance or, or this use, that your life is just meaningless. Right. I mean, this is literally what addiction feels like every day for the person who is trapped in their addiction. And so for people who, you know, thank God that's not their biology. Thank God they don't have a predisposition to, you know, addiction. But tragically, many people do, you know, many people do. And so it's just, you know, but again, trying to change that mindset of those in the public. And certainly those in power who legislatively can do things and organizationally can do things, you know, that's kind of what we're up against. If they were to see it as an actual disease, 
you know, and the disease, we call it a disease because obviously there's a, you know, a, a chemical manifestation. There's a structural manifestation in the brain that looks different from somebody who's not an addict. That's just scientific. Don't argue with me. But there's an onset like a disease. It is progressive, if not treated like a disease, and it can kill you if not treated like a disease. So how is it not a disease? How is that different than diabetes? How is that different than cancer? Right. There's an onset. It is progressive and it can kill you unless treated. Yep. And I when you asked when you said just rhetorically, what is the difference between that and these other diseases? It's it is the societal mindset around addiction. Just like you said, it's people thinking that it's a choice and. And at first, I was one of those people, I'll admit, because I didn't understand it. You know, I was so pissed off at my brother for making these choices. And I was younger. I was in college at the time when I realized that he was using these substances pretty regularly. And I just didn't understand. But the more that I, one, had, you know, I saw him kind of deteriorate and his life deteriorate. And then the more I just started to see that we operated differently, we can, we come from different parents, but I can have a, a beer or a glass of wine or what have you and be fine, right? And say, okay, cool. I had that with dinner. Now I'm good. But his, he spirals, you know, it's not just one drink. It's not even just two drinks. It's the whole bottle. It's, you know, it's what can I do to make this experience feel even better? And, you know, and people do think that's a choice and that's, it's definitely not because the way that he and I both operate are very different levels. And it's just, I mean, like, where do we begin is step one, just changing the stigma around what addiction is and looks like. I feel like we're slowly getting there, but I'm sure that's something that you probably talk about and deal with on a daily basis. Well, you're right. It has to start with changing the stigma around addiction and what it is. And because when you do that, then you will start to get, again, the power players on board to actually start, you know, finding ways to treat it. Now, thankfully, Oregon is more progressive than a lot of other states. And so, you know, the decriminalization of small amounts of drugs, you know, and then that being kind of gateway to to get people connected to treatment resources. Now, granted, we're very, you know, we're lacking heavily in that department as somebody who takes those calls and does those screenings for people. I know, but, but there is a lot being done actually as we speak to get those community networks up and going so that people, when people do call us to do this screening and I can convince them that treatment is probably in their best interest, if they're kind of on the fence, then there will be somewhere that can get them in within the next couple of days and not put them on a waiting list for a month or two because now that momentum dies, right? And so you, there's like a short window of opportunity, you know, when people have gotten cited for a small amount of drugs and go, they go to court and they call me and they do the screening and we try to get them into treatment. There's a small window that we have to be able to kind of capitalize on that momentum, that brief mind shift for them that says, okay, I've got this opportunity. I'm going to take it. You put them on a waiting list for a month, you know, good luck. And so a lot is being done uh, regarding that. Uh, you know, I'm still frustrated that it hasn't happened yet, but I am encouraged that there seems to be some movement on that. But you're right. It's changing, you know, fundamentally changing the way that we look at addiction as a society that will then, you know, get people to act. And so if you change you educate the public, they see what it is, then they start to mobilize, right? That's how we get things done in this country, at least in theory. We mobilize as a people, we put pressure on politicians and people in power to then start to take action to meet our needs. And so, again, I'll speak to anybody who, who wants to listen. And I know there's a lot of other people like me, but it has been an uphill effort to this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your future. So you right now are an author, a speaker, a counselor, and a podcaster, which is incredible and so encouraging just hearing your story you know, over this almost past hour of what you've gone through and what you've changed into is just absolutely amazing. But what is next? What is, uh, yeah, what is next? So about five years before I got out of prison, I had the opportunity, the privilege 
of starting to tell my story. They had volunteers from the outside come into the prison for DUI victim impact panels. And there'd be about 50 inmates in a circle and somebody who had lost someone to DUI, a DUI driver would come in and tell, share their story with us. And then after they would speak, one of us on the inside who was there for this type of crime would share our story, obviously, you know, showing full remorse and accountability and things like that. And there was so much, you know, cathartic healing in that room. You know, it kind of goes with the restorative justice model where the community is harmed when somebody offends and therefore the healing has to be done in a communal sense between, you know, what they say, victim and an offender. Right. And so it also lets the person, the offender, so to speak, it lets them know that you are still part of the community. There is a way to make amends. We haven't totally thrown you away and given up on you. Right. And so it was a very unique experience within the prison walls. And I have continued that. I made some really good connections through those paths that have continued out here. So I've spoken, you know, I got out and I spoke in Eugene and in and, and Salem and Pendleton. I just went there a couple months ago and those are all in Oregon. And then I, I speak every month with the trauma nurses talk tough at Emmanuel hospital remotely. They have panels every month. I've spoken to kids who have, you know, gotten a minor in possession charge. And so before they head down that wrong path, I want to be able to reach them. And so I speak to them and I've recently started connecting with some panels in Pennsylvania to, to, to speak there as well. So I speak at DUI victim impact panels wherever I can. I'm looking to get into middle schools and high school, high schools this upcoming year. I'm going to be, you know, kind of getting my story out there and, and hope to be brought in to speak to them as well. I work as a drug and alcohol counselor and a crisis intervention specialist on the National Suicide Prevention Hotline with Lines for Life based out of Portland. And it is incredible. I love my work every day. I get to talk to people struggling, you know, with substance use and mental health disorders. And I'm able to, I'm able to be that, you know, that comfort and empathy that they need in that moment to help, you know, see that there is hope and, and then connect them with many resources uh, that we have at our disposal. And so it's just very rewarding. I, you know, I've lived a sober life in the year that I've been out. I was a little worried, if I'm being honest, before I got out, if I could actually enjoy life sober because I had never lived out here, you know, sober. And let me just say that I have lived my best life since I've been out. I travel, I've been you know, on a cruise and I've, you know, went skydiving and surfing and went to Washington, D.C. and, you know, concerts and just really, truly enjoying life. And and the beautiful thing is that I can remember the next day what I did, which is something I could not do when I was in my addiction. So I'm looking to. so I've been out a year this next year. I'm looking to further you know, get my story out there do, doing things like this with the podcast. I co-host a podcast with a friend of mine up in Canada. She started off as a pen pal about five years ago, and we kind of bonded over over some heavy issues. And so we thought, well, why not take this to the masses? And so it's called, called Rock the Bottom Podcast. We talk to people who have hit rock bottom and ask them to share how they were able to navigate that emotionally and mentally. And then now how you know, they're living a purposeful life today because of what they have gone through. And so we just try to inspire hope and change in people and just let them know that, you know, as long as you're breathing, there is hope. And so I enjoy that very much. Published a couple books and looking to write another one and just continue to push this message and continue to honor my victims' lives and the vow that I made almost 20 years ago. I love how you live every day with this purpose. And I know that your book is <laughs> it's called The Prison to Purpose Pipeline, one of your books at least. And I just, I love that word purpose. And I just feel like you emanate that so well. And you're living your life by example every day. And I'm sure that it's not always easy, especially being, a, you know, an addict and having that addiction part of your brain. But, you know, your story is giving people hope and it's giving people the opportunity to see that bad things do happen, unfortunately. But look at you, you're this prime example of how to turn 
this awful situation is something that is that that you can live your life with purpose every day and not have your victims' lives go unnoticed and and all that. So I think this is amazing, Martin. You are doing amazing work, and I'm so happy to have connected with you. Thank you. It means a ton to be acknowledged and things like that. But you know, I just I asked myself if somebody had done this to my family member what would I want the outcome to be? Would I just want them to go to prison for X amount of years, get out and go on with the rest of their life, their life as though nothing happened? Or would I want them to, you know, carry the message forward so that other families don't have to, you know, suffer this tremendous heartache? And obviously it would be the latter. So if that's what I would want from someone who had done this to my family members, then, you know, that's all the motivation I need to continue to do this every day. I appreciate you having me on, obviously, and allowing me this platform to share my message. And I just want anybody out there to know that no matter what your circumstance is, no matter how bleak it may seem, there is hope. And there are people out there who care and want to help you succeed. And one of the resources that I'm affiliated with is the hotline that I talked about at 1-800-273-8255. You can follow the prompts and talk to somebody like me or somebody else in recovery who has been there and be more than happy to listen and to help you with whatever resources we can. So thank you all for listening. It was an honor to be here. Martin Lockett is a published author, counselor, speaker, and co-host of the podcast, Rock the Bottom. You can find his books, Prison to Purpose Pipeline, and Martin Lockett, My Prison Story, on Amazon or through his website, martinlockett.com. I've also linked his podcast, website, and social media channels in the show notes. This episode was produced by Jason Sosoyev, and special thanks to Matthew Street for creating Penn's theme music. If you or someone you know has a story to share, please send me a note at pendpodcast.com.